An elegant weapon for a more civilized age. Well, heck, man, let's get into it, because, kids, this is episode 422 of an elegant weapon and man this is a fun one kids all the way from Kelowna BC all the way on the other side of the country the man himself ladies and gentlemen Canadian treasure Mr. John Delaney welcome to the show my friend thank you Jay uh Canadian treasure I've never been called that before but I'll take it I like absolutely it. well you you can own that man because you absolutely <laughs> are such uh thank you brother. Got to meet you this year, earlier in the year, at uh, Calgary. Yeah. And what an epic time that turned out to be, yeah? Oh, man. So much fun. I know you've probably been on the con scene a while. How did that weekend compare to most? Um, uh, Calgary is always great. You know, the people are so wonderful. They're excited. Um, I had done the uh, limited edition one in Calgary, and they still had all that level of, uh, you know, enthusiasm and excitement uh, to be there. Uh, I love the people in Alberta. The Edmonton ones are great. The Calgary ones are, are fantastic. Um, the Canadians in general are just fantastic. The Toronto one, we, you and I had a lot of fun there, too. Um, yeah, no, there's just um, just great, great people. And uh, the Calgary one was just bumping just for pure adrenaline. Yeah, everybody's excited for it to be back and not having to wear the masks and all this stuff that, you know, culminated in making it a really nice personal experience you had a gangbuster show man just in terms of being out there i mean you did a couple sketch battles and i i was there hosting them and man we had a we had a blast you you were just as excited as the fans to be back out there uh excited that um that enough people know my know my work and you know want to come out and meet and talk and i'm still you know obviously producing i just finished a uh, uh bride of frankenstein mary frankenstein uh short for uh, source point press and you know still to be rocking and rolling after almost 30 years in this business is pretty great and uh to go to these comic cons and have these kids come up to me and go i grew up with your stuff well it certainly makes me feel old it also <laughs> makes me feel very honored <laughs> how did the comic-con world start for you do you remember your first con Oh, yeah. My very first one was uh, San Diego, DC Comics, when I was doing Adventures in the DC Universe. Flew me out there. Uh, I was on uh, a table with Tim Sale, the late, great Tim Sale, and myself and Mike Carlin. And we were all uh, talking about, you know, some of the newer things that had sort of a cartoonier side. And uh, uh, Tim, I think, was just uh, starting on Superman for all seasons while I was doing Adventures. And uh, it was an incredible time. You know, I met Stan Lee. I met so many of my idols at that time. Uh, the Comic Cons then were a little less movie focused, so it was still really about the comics. And, and uh, so there was a great community. I remember sitting up, you know, in the lounge with Ron Garney, who was doing Captain America at that time, and just loved his work. And you know, just just swapping stories with uh, some of these people who I work I admired forever. You know, getting to know guys like Gil Kane and you know John Broom, and you know, just uh, absolutely mind blowing experience. So yeah, I, I'll never forget my first con. It was it was remarkable. That's a hell of a first con to have uh, yeah, yeah, to head on out there. So did that kind of, were you like, wow, this is a trip. I'm going to keep doing this. Yeah. And, you know, I, and I did, I was very fortunate. The uh, DC was really, really great back in those days, you know, like, you know, becoming a, a corporate entity that they became, I kind of got in right before all that kind of took off the movies and all that sort of thing. So they were still flying uh, talent out and putting us up in beautiful places, you know, like Fan Expo does for me now. They're wonderful. But uh, back then, the publishers used to do it. So DC flew me out to the Big Apple Con as well. I did the New York one. I did, uh, I think of all the ones, Toronto. Yeah, like DC was really, really pushing that book at the time. And it was wonderful because the comic um, sort of took place in between the Superman Adventures and Batman Adventures. There was no Justice League yet. So we were designing all the characters based on what was happening in DC Comics at the time. So Kyle Rayner was the uh, Green Lantern. Superman had the long hair. Um, you know, we were just doing things in our animated sort of style to kind of move it towards that. And then eventually, we, you know, fortunately, we were able to move away from the long hair Superman, <laughs> which made me happy. 
<laughs> but um, yeah, like when Superman went electric, we were the only uh, book that was uh, still at Superman in the, the uh, you know, in its physical form. So that was cool because our numbers shot up. You know, people love the classic Superman. So we were doing that. And then I did Superman versus Lobo. So there's a lot of things that sort of dovetailed off that. And DC was very, very supportive at the time. Um, they, they remained uh, very supportive, but a lot of the Comic Cons got sort of more, I don't want to use the word taken over, but certainly... Um, the focus seemed to drift more towards the movies and uh, and all movies, you know, even Harold and Kumar and anything that had sort of popular culture in it. So it started to change the uh, the Comic Cons. And that, for a while there, pushed me away from wanting to do them too much. Mm-hmm. I was getting, yeah, I was getting a little bummed out about it because I love comics. I mean, for me, it's a passion. And I loved when I first started working. Everybody else felt that way too. So the lineups were all about you know, this issue, do you remember this? And, you know, things like that, talking about those kind of things. And I was finding that as we were moving towards, you know, the movies became a thing, everybody was then saying, like, did you have anything to do with the movies or did you work on this, you know? And even though I'd had a very good career of storyboarding and lots of live action stuff and animated stuff, um, I just wasn't there for that reason. I was there to talk about comics and to talk about what we were doing. And that was my own shortcoming, Jay, because, you know, I just didn't realize that things were changing. And I guess right. I wanted to hold on to this idea. But when I came back to doing comics, uh, Comic-Cons a few years back, you know, I came back in such a wonderful way because I had been away for a little while. And in that ensuing time, I'd worked on The Simpsons. I'd worked on Futurama. I'd done a lot of different things. Voltron Force, I directed that. And I directed Chaotic and all these things. So when I came back, it was much more, I was much more a product of all that with both television and comic books and all that sort of thing. So I embraced it a lot more and it was wonderful. You know, I just realized, oh, maybe I got that wrong the first time around. Well, e- even though you were a little wrong on that, you were ahead of the curve on a lot of other people in the industry in that you were already varied from very earlier in your in your career. Like you're saying, you were involved yeah. in animation and storyboarding and comic books where people are starting to branch out into that now these days because they realize it's just, you know, it's more avenues for, you know, income. And it's a way yeah, to you know, supplement your career, that, right? Sure. And I also think that for a lot of people, we we get started in this industry with a love for all those other things. And for me, I was fortunate in the fact that I started in animation and I started in doing commercials and storyboarding for live action. So I was working on, you know, old Richard Grieco movies like Born to Run when he was doing 21 <laughs> Jump Street, you know, awesome. stuff like that. Yeah, so I, you know, I remember doing uh, storyboards on the Doctor Who movie with um, uh, Eric Roberts as the whoa, master. Whoa, whoa, you know? whoa, 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 whoa. Whoa! <laughs> I thought that my cat think you're interesting. Whoa! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I so I, I was very fortunate. I can't believe there's more to this resume. You worked on the Doctor Who movie. Yeah, I did. Yeah, yeah. So it was really, really cool. And uh, you know, I, I knew Doctor Who, you know, from but I knew him from comics. Like the, there was a British comic that they had actually put out. Yeah. So I didn't know the show that well. So when I was approaching the storyboard i was approaching it from the way they're doing the comics which are a lot of ellipsed angles and doing all these kind of things and i remember the director saying hey man like this is cool but can you just straighten that out like we're never going to shoot it that way <laughs> i was like oh okay, oh, okay. Yeah. yeah yeah so yeah yeah everything looked like batman the 1960s series you know, it was all the tilts and stuff so basically right? the script comes to you and you straight up storyboard it out right yeah, I mean, you'll you'll usually meet with the director. Um, when I'm directing something, um, I usually have notes inside the script. You know, so that I've, when I've read through the script, I thought, oh, this would be a cool shot, or this is, you know, I want an establishing shot or a wide angle or whatever. And so when I'll meet with the storyboard artist, I'll have sort of a collection of shots that I've thought, well, this this is what I'd like to see. But I'm also very open to whatever the storyboard artist brings. And so in my case, because I had a, a film background. Most times when I went in, I sort of understood what the director wanted even before having to meet with the director. So a lot of times I would just get the script, start envisioning what that would look like, and then go in and see the director and the director say, yeah, cool. I don't want to want to do that. Or maybe I'll really want to do that and that kind of thing. And then once you get um, a reputation, for me, I'm very quick. I'm fast. You've seen right. me do sketches. Oh, yeah. So uh, the difficulty for some directors is their time is so precious. They don't have time to sit down with the storyboard artist. So it's usually throw it out there and then I'll pick and choose what happened in my career because of my speed was now I could have one-on-ones. So I'd be sitting across from Chris Carter, you know, during on dark oh, angel God. and he's, he's pitching me and I'm going, cool. I got that. And I'm just drawing right in front of them and we're pinning this stuff all down. And then I would go home with it. Two days later, I produce a, a finished board based on the conversations with a guy like Chris Carter or Dan Sackheim or David Nutter, or, you know, in Smallville, I did the pilot for Smallville and uh, I'm sitting there with David Nutter. I'm a super huge Superman fan, as you know, and I'm, you know, he's got this problem with uh, Martha and, um, uh, Jonathan Kent 
are supposed to fall into this um, this crevice where uh, Kal-El, young Kal-El's ship has landed, and they didn't know how to do it, you know, because it was going to cost a fortune to roll the truck and everything. So I said, dude, let's do a side mount on the side of the car, because I had a background on film. And I said, we'll spin the camera so it looks like the truck is rolling, put a lot of smoke, this, and now we cut away to the next shot, and you've landed the truck. Now we're not destroying the truck. Now it's in a crevice. You know, we didn't have to do the stunt. And that ended up in the film. So it was really cool. Is it often that the storyboard artist is able to contribute so much to the actual production and filming? Or is that just particular to you because you have those backgrounds? Well, thank you. No, but it's, it's very common. Um, you know, um, you know, Alfred Hitchcock's psycho, right? Everybody always talks about the shower scene. Hitchcock was the first person to say he, he really owes it to the storyboard artist on that. He knew he didn't want to show any nudity. The uh, the um, filmmaker, uh, the um, uh, movie company was very, very strict about no nudity in this. Right. But he wanted to show flashes of this idea. So the storyboard artist said, well, we'll do it as cuts. And because it was already a cut with a blade, it became this idea that multiple cuts would insinuate that. So he would flash between the blade and then glimpses of her body. So there's lots of times where you're thinking, I think I saw something. You never did. But he sh- he cut it together. And it was the storyboard artist who put that whole thing together. And then Alfred Hitchcock cut it. And he went, oh, that's a genius. We've got to we got to win here. And that scene is generally sort of regarded as one of the greatest moments in horror films and yeah. all done by the storyboard artist. That's amazing, man. When you're doing a storyboard for a comic book related property, is there is there any weirdness in the process of drawing the storyboards where you have to keep it more real life in your head? Um, Do you know what I mean? Like, because when you're doing a comic, you'd be a little more fantastical and a little more, you know, grandiose about maneuvers and actions. But when you're doing the storyboard, do you have to remind yourself, like? This is going to be filmed. This has to be real people like in, right. in real ways. You know, Jay, that's such a great question. It's one I've really been asked, and I'm really glad you asked it. And when I first started in in um, doing uh, superhero stuff, because I had a reputation for um, doing a lot of animation, people often would turn to me to say, hey, how do we solve this problem in a live action thing? But it was always based on the idea is how do we make it look real? And as the year have gone by with the advent of CGI becoming so good and so um, believable. Less of that is is required. Now I can do storyboards where I say he takes off, he flies here and he whips over like that. You know, you look at those scenes with Namor in uh, uh, Wakanda Forever and the way he's flying, he's doing all these things. That'd be almost impossible to do in in film before, but now you can, right? So it's changed a lot. But when I was first doing Smallville, the the adage was no flights, no tights, right? So he wasn't allowed to fly. So we had to make everything they did look like it was coming from a, a super human emphasis on the human so everything i had to do we had to figure out how do you make this look real but also fantastic you know but it was very much the emphasis on real and that has changed a lot now so you know we're not so quite so uh, locked in you know when captain america grabs uh, mjornay you know (laughs) it falls into his arm and that's just a great shot you don't even worry about whether or not it makes sense or didn't tear his arm off or anything you know? <laughs> it just looks cool right yeah. so there's no worry about that but i'll tell you i used to have conversations like that where they're going like yeah there's no way he could capture in midair you know he'd snap her back and you're going like wow you know like that's true but nobody thought about that in comics we don't care about that sort of thing right of course and suddenly you had to suddenly you had to and um you know zach snyder when he was doing um, Justice League, he kept talking about the Flash, and he kept saying, you know, the toughest part about doing the Flash is realizing that he's moving at these kind of speeds that even if he touched you, you would disintegrate, right? So he says, how do we get the Flash to do it? So he would have him run into a scene, super fast, stop, grab the person, and take off, then stop, and then put the person down. It was never, you know, and that was really intelligent. He was trying to use a lot of the physics to make it feel like a real experience. Right. So when I was first storyboarding in, in things like, you know, even like uh, I did the movie Screwed with uh, Norm MacDonald and Dave Chappelle, and they had this huge scene where they're, they, the guys are firing weapons, and we had to shoot it in the street, and they were concerned about, you know, all these things. So we were putting squibs, which you'd, you'd use on people, we were putting them on buildings and just having a little um, plaster in them to explode. Pow, pow, pow. So it looks really, really cool because we couldn't figure out any other way to do it other than endangering people, right? So right. you had to, you have to sort of come up with solutions and go, well, how do we do this without this causing some kind of an effect or hurting our actor or any of those things, right? So, so yeah, in the early days, storyboarding was a lot about problem solving as well. How do we make this work and not hurt anybody? Now, right. you know, it's a lot of CGI, so it's like, okay, we can we can pull this off, or they're going to be on wires, and we'll just take the wires out and do all that stuff. So it's changed quite a bit, but in the early days, yeah, it was a lot of. It's of, weird um, how there's this like shift as the audience grows more intelligent with just basic science and knowledge in the world. Mm-hmm. Like as society becomes more familiar 
with the way things work, you have to fold that into the stories more yet. You still have to find that balance of this is unbelievable and impossible. So it's, yeah. it's, 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 I don't know if it's sad, but it's, oh, it's definitely it's the biggest think, difference from like the eighties to now is the, is the, um, is the ability to, sus- to suspend your belief, right? Like, yeah, the suspension of disbelief is a big, big part of, you know, animation. It's a big, big part of any kind of action adventure thing. You know what I mean? You're going in with the idea of saying, look, I know this is unbelievable, but I want you to suspend that and, and take in the adventure out of it. Right. And so, Grant Morrison was fantastic about doing that when he reignited uh, the JLA, because he realized that this was this sort of pantheon of almost Greek gods, you know, and and they're existing amongst the the humans. And how would that affect things? You know, how would that do things? Before that, you know, they all just sort of landed and Batman would take this guy with a batarang and Superman would do this, and they all just did these things. But Grant Morrison actually started thinking to himself, well, what about the science here? Like, if someone like Superman landed, what does that mean? Like, how, what's the concussive nature? He was one of the first people to talk about just how strong Aquaman would be if he's sustaining these muscles were, you know, underneath the depths of water, like that kind of pressure, that he'd be super freaking strong, and his muscles would be super dense. Nobody made Aquaman bulletproof before that, but yeah. it was Grant Morrison who went, of course he would be. His skin would be impenetrable. He's in the depths of the ocean, right? So taking those scientific nods and, and applying it to fantastical elements, I think gives legitimacy to those fantastic elements. You know, it was John Byrne who came up with the idea that Superman was solar powered. Up until then, they just said, oh, he's just from another planet. You know, everybody on Krypton was strong. No, what he said was, well, what if they had a red sun and his son was a, a young uh, yellow star that was just that his cells just drank and suddenly he became super powered. So Superman is really only super powered on Earth or any planet with a yellow sun or maybe a blue sun. He gets to a red sun, he doesn't have his powers anymore. That's yeah. a cool twist. And it's a scientific twist that says, I gave you a reason for why Superman has these powers. Yeah. It's not just, oh, he can leave the tallest building. There's a reason he can do that. Right. And then comes and in the question, that. how long do those cells stay charged? Right. Like could right. he could right. he could he how long could he sustain away from, you know, our son? Yeah. See, it goes on. Yet at the same time, we're talking about a dude smoking in the power of the sun. Like, right. It's, I mean, that is, the idea balance. is absurd, but it, it gives right. you a, a uh, it gives you what you call a linchpin. You know, you want right. to be able to hold on to something to say, this makes sense to me. It may not make reasonable sense or scientific sense, but it makes sense to me. It gives you a sense that I understand the character. So when they did Final Night, it took about, two or three weeks before Superman fully powered down because there's no sun, right? So right. he's wandering. So at first he's still doing all this, stuff, but he's feeling weaker and weaker. So I love that idea. I always thought the stories where, you know, he goes to a planet, they shine a red light on it and he's sort of thing, and he's instantly powerless. That's absurd, right? Yeah. You know, it would take a while for those the cells to drain off, right? right? So that was cool that they started to kind of fold in this idea. Well, how long would it take for Superman to power down, right? Yeah. And from what I understand in the new Flash movie, uh, the Supergirl um, is only half powered. Um, they've been keeping her sort of in in a low lit room or something. This I don't know the whole story, but she's apparently only half powered. And throughout this, the film, through her interaction with Barry Allen, and that she starts to get fully powered to become a right. fully fledged Supergirl. But that's a cool take. So, how do you feel about the? Because as these other superheroes get even more powerful, that means Superman's got to get even more powerful because he's the most powerful. And for years, there's been this discussion of. You know, what do you do with Superman when he gets to a certain point? Like, you know, when he's so overpowered, yep. how do you come up with any kind of, you know, situation for him to it's be It's a in? simple answer. You break his heart. Superman oh. is the most sensitive amongst us, right? Yeah. True. Yeah. Like, if you if you threaten Lois or you, you hurt Superman, you know, that's how you hurt Superman. You're right. I mean, a lot of people go, oh, Superman's really hard to write because he's invulnerable. He's in all these things. No, he's not, actually. He has kryptonite. You can certainly go to that well. But that's an easy, easy one. But if you break Superman's heart, if you break his reason for doing this and you destroy that, that's how you destroy Superman, right? There's mm-hmm. lots of ways physically to hurt Superman. You know, uh, Mongol and Doomsday have both shown that, you know, Superman can get his ass kicked. But the way to really hurt Superman, and this is why Superman is such a freaking amazing character, is he's not a character born of hurt. He's a character born of hope. And you take hope away and you hurt Superman. That's mm-hmm. That's unique to that character beautiful beautiful point of view that's why i love him that's why i got him <laughs> on my arm oh <laughs> so um i don't know how much you know or even are able to discuss um about the whole dc situation um mm. but 
I personally, I'll give you my thoughts on the situation. Sure. Is I'm as as happy as I was with a lot of the Snyderverse, because I'm a huge Snyder fan. I'm a big Snyder yeah. apologist. I mean, I understand yeah. the flaws in the in the Snyderverse, yet at the same time, I think some really beautiful, cool things were done uh throughout mm-hmm. a lot of those movies. I do I do feel that a reset is probably a good idea. Yeah. What my hopes for kind of are leaning on what you just said about Superman and the fact that James Gunn has that ability to find those moments. Like to me, Yondu's funeral is the single most emotional moment oh, yeah. in the entire MCU. 100%. It's beautiful. And, yeah. And if he can bring that kind of feeling to Superman, I'm all for yeah, it. Yeah, I'm, I'm a huge Henry Cavill fan as well, and I'm a big Zack Snyder fan. You and I have talked about that a little bit in the yeah. past. Um, I loved what he did, but I also realized that, that um, with that Zack Snyder universe, there comes a lot of baggage. And as a filmmaker myself, I would be very quick to want to say, I love these characters, but I really want to go in a different direction. And I think a guy like James Gunn, who is very much about the human condition and the the emotional element of things. One of the reasons that Guardians worked when nobody even knew who Guardians of the Galaxy were is because how much heart it had, right? You felt for for Peter because you watched his mother be him basically stripped from his mother as his mother's dying. And that's an incredibly powerful way to open a film. Then he meets all these other misfits and that, and he thinks the whole time he's being used and then finds out that Yondo has actually loved him the entire time. All those are those elements, those beautiful elements that James Gunn does so well and has done in so many films before this i think if i was james gunn i would say you know i don't need to reset everything but i need to reset some things and i love henry cavill and i'm really really hoping he gets made james bond now that he has time to shoot james bond that would be it for me but i think replacing him as superman is a good step forward because it gives a fresh palette. It gives somebody to not say, oh, you know, we wanted this guy, we wanted that guy. Now he gets a chance to really play in a sandbox, make a little bit younger Superman, right? So he can actually tell the story of falling in love with Lois, not with all the trappings, all this, all the stuff that comes with that. You know, you can sort of see what made him, the, the Scub reporter, why, why he found all these things. The other thing, too, you know, Zach did a lot of things that were amazing but also caused a lot of controversy um uh, superman killing zod that was a real tough one for a lot of people and you know zach said like well he had to make that rule come from somewhere so he had to be put in that situation and i thought he did it brilliantly but i don't know that he needed to be put in that situation i've also been of a mind that he was raised to not think that way you know so when he was playing with the idea that jonathan kent's going you know maybe you let the kid die because it's better than that than them finding out about you that's not the john kent i know you know, Jonathan right. Kent would never say that. He would say, yes, you have to help. You have to do whatever you can. So yeah. the second film, Batman vs. Superman, where she, where he says, I'm not Superman. Superman is just a, the uh, the idea of a farmer in Kansas. Yeah, except that it wasn't. In the previous film, he was saying you should let the kid die, right? right. So that's true. That is, It is a dream of a farmer in Kansas saying you're meant for something. You know, that, that opening line where, um, you know, uh, Glenn Ford says to Christopher Reeve, you know, all I do know, son, is you're here for a reason. You know what that reason is, you know, and I love that. Right. And they touch on that. And and he built to that, you know, Zack Snyder built to that. And that beautiful chemistry between Kevin Costner and Henry Cavill was palpable. It was wonderful. But I love the idea that they're going to sort of start a little fresh. I felt that um, the DC universe had become so hit and miss. Wonder Woman 84 was just abysmal. I mean, and I think that. Right. Yeah, and I think Patty Jenkins is an amazing director. You know, Monsters, a fantastic film. Wonder Woman number one is freaking epic. It's great. But something happened in the the mindset of, of where these films are going. They were so desperate to carve that niche that sound, felt like a Marvel film. Yeah. Yet they had none of the they they are not dealing with a Marvel film because the distinction between a DC film and a Marvel one is very simple. Marvel uh, characters are mostly human who kind of wink to the camera and go, look, I'm putting on a suit. Isn't this funny? You know, yeah, because they're yeah. kind of uh, kind of humorous, right? You have Thor, but Thor, even Thor makes fun of himself. He's very self-deprecating. The DC characters are gods yeah. and they're amongst us. And they're struggling to kind of figure out ways to work amongst us without hurting people, but trying to trying to do the right thing. Even Batman is basically Hades, right? He's, you know, this conflicted, angry guy who wants to punish anybody who might even remotely resemble the people that hurt his parents or killed his parents. So you have these complexities of the DC characters that are so much deeper and richer and need to be mined, but mined with a, an idea towards 
goodness, not torment. And I think what Zach was doing was he was trying to show torment transitioning to goodness. And that's why the Zack Snyder Justice League film right. is so good. Yeah. Batman has that. He he changes. He goes, I'm I'm relying on hope now, Alfred. You know, he yeah. believes in the, the death of Superman has changed him in a dramatic way. They it's the same idea Batman. they used for the Batman. Right. Right. Yeah. Like, you know, yeah. this idea that like I'm a message of hope. Right. Yeah. And th that's a really good message. And, and it's important that the gods amongst us, as it were, start to really feel for, for the people. They're not above us. They actually want to be part of us, you know, and yeah. one of the uh, things I think it was John Byrne did in uh, Man of Steel and then Lene, you and uh, Mark Wade did was they were saying Superman certainly could fly in and feed the world, you know, take grain to all these things and do all these, you know, all these things. But he wants to be a beacon. He doesn't want to do that because he realizes, yes, I have that. But then I'm uh, I'm an, a dictator. I'm the guy telling you how you should live. What he's trying right. to do is inspire. And right. that's what the DC characters are supposed to do. They're inspire. The Marvel characters have always been much more venal. They've always been much more um, grandiose. You know, uh, uh, Tony Stark is flawed. Doctor Strange is pretty much Tony Stark, except with magical powers. Um, you know, the only good guy amongst them is Captain America, and he's dead now, right? Well, yeah, so, and it's of their you know, times, right? Like Captain America was yeah. that standout because he was more of a DC-type birth, which is part of the reason 100%. to bring you back into this is why you know adventures in the dc is such a beautiful book and so perfect for you to be you know have taken on is because of the age and the time and the era that that the dc heroes came from that retro vibe yeah. that pastelly you. you know just just clean feel of the past is so you know, it's just, and that's part of the reason that, that, like, the animated shows were so great, and you know, Justice League was so amazing. And part of the problem, I think, is, you know, that I guess I hope James Gunn can figure it out. But how do you top those movies? Like the the, well, the DC Gunn, animated universes. Oh, it's brilliant. Yeah, yeah right? no, I, like I think James Gunn. First of all, I know he's a huge animation fan. He said something in his uh, when he was talking about to the fans saying, you know, we're going to incorporate all things television, movies, animation, and games. They're all going to be part of an umbrella at DCU. That's really, really exciting for me because I'm thinking to myself, you know, the Arkham Asylum games were really, really cool, but they sort of existed on the outside of what was happening in the Batman universe. But imagine you're watching a Batman film and then you're watching a say a green lantern television show and that batman is referenced and then you're playing a video game and both those characters are referenced again like it all becomes this umbrella universe i'm really excited about the prospect of that i'm excited about a younger superman because i love the idea that this optimistic hopeful guy can come amongst all these guys who've been maybe doing it a while and they're going yeah. what's with this guy and he's yet the most powerful of us there's something really exciting about that and i'm, I'm stoked about the idea of that i, I hope I think they don't that, go too young though no, no, I don't think so. He's still, you know, he's going to be a man in his twenties because he's, you know, he's a cub reporter of the Daily Planet. You know, he's it probably, I'd say, he's probably going to be about twenty three or twenty four. It's right. just Henry Cavill is, you know, he's thirty eight years old, right? He's going to be forty by the time they finish that film. It ain't going right. to work. It's yeah. you know, so you need a younger Superman. I like Tyler Hodgson and uh, Superman and Lois, but he's also an older Superman. You know, he's the wink and all that kind of stuff, right? Yeah. I want to see a young Superman that you know is the the burgeoning idea. You know the of what Superman means and fight, figuring it out and you know falling in love and and realizing how much he cares about people and and just those hometown roots. You know, like he's a kid from Kansas. You know, raised with these kind of these ideas and these virtues and these these beliefs and ideals that really are they could sound very hokey in the wrong hands. But a guy like James Gunn, I think he'll really do a wonderful job. I think he'll bring that kind of wonderful nature to it. Kevin Smith's uh, Superman film. Uh, when he wrote the script, I don't know if you ever read the script, but he had that that beautiful joyousness to Superman. And Superman grabs this one kid, kid's eating a can of SpaghettiOs, and there's an explosion going by, and, and all of a sudden you see this blur of blue and red, and the kid's up on top of a building, and he's holding his SpaghettiOs, and then Superman's standing above him, and Superman goes, hmm, tomato. I love that. <laughs> yeah. You know? I just love yeah. that. I went, oh, that's awesome, right? You know what? I want to take Superman yeah. would take that moment to do that, right? Back yeah. I'm going to go, are you all right? Okay, I'm off, you know? <laughs> but Superman would go, tomato you know that it just uh i want to see that superman i want to see yeah. that the guy who winks and he's kind of i want to see that superman like is superman's most impactful moments are not when he's being strong or not when he's being powerful it's when he's being kind and it's when he's being yeah, compassionate 100%. like you know there's been a few occasions where somebody was about to jump off a building for whatever yeah. reason and there he was just with a kind word 
And yeah, All-Star Superman has that beautiful moment where the girl is calling yeah. her, her psychologist and, you know, she's trying to get through to him and he keeps getting the, the buzzer and Superman's doing all these things and he's running Grant Morrison is geniusly writing this phone call throughout these, all these other panels of Superman doing all these things. Finally, she's standing there. They, they show the, the girl. She's a straw. She's got her hand on her thing. She's dropping the phone. She's giving up. She's about to jump off. And Superman lands behind her and he grabs her and he says, you know, you're much stronger than you think. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, come on. That's just, <laughs> yeah. that's Superman, right? Not yeah. I've got you or, you know, don't, you know, he just yeah. tells, he gives her those words of encouragement saying, you know, he really was busy. He couldn't take the call and don't worry about it. You're much stronger than you think. Uh, I still say that to my friends whenever they're having a bad time. I'm going, you know, you're much stronger than you think. Yeah. I love a, that. It's a beautiful thing, man. It's so inspiring. And that's yeah. what those heroes are meant to do, you know? And uh, yeah, they are. You know, I don't mind a correction. See, I have, you know, the whole, old school nerd thing of being stuck on canon and shit like yeah. that. And yeah. I let go of a lot of stuff. Like as I've grown up into a mature adult, obviously I don't have those extreme yeah. issues. There's one thing that sticks with me though. That's really, really hard. And that's resemblance. And yeah. when a character is so far off, you may love the actor, but when the character is so far off and that's been a big problem yeah. for me with the DCU, like, mainly like shazam like zachary levi yeah. great actor awesome talented dude but yeah the whole point of shazam is for him to look so unworldly chiseledly like yeah. godlike yet have the soul of a boy that's the that's yeah. the contrast there where he looks like a boy to me and that yeah you know i can see I that mean? like and so I, so here's the thing that you know they're obviously basing their shazam much more on the 1980s He's uh, Jeff uh, or oh, yeah. uh, J.M. DeMattis, Keith Giffen, um, Shazam, which I enjoyed. But one of the things that leaves me a little cold for the Shazam movies is, is the lack of the wisdom of Solomon. He's an idiot. Yes. <laughs> and he acts like an idiot. And yes. you're going, the wisdom of Solomon's an, an important part. It doesn't mean that you're smart about everything, but it's that you're, you're trepidous. You go, wait a minute, and you think things through, right? So he can go, I'm going to bust your ass, but then go, you know, and then something should flash in him. Like, you're there's an alternative or like when he's fighting the guy, like he should be able to think ahead of the thing. Like there's something really cool about the idea of having the wisdom of Solomon that hasn't really been explored in the Shazam films. He's pretty much Superman as a kid. And I'm yeah. going like, you're missing a big, big part of that Solomon, which is the, you know, Solomon's famous for, you know, King Solomon saying, you know, uh, two women are claiming to own the same baby. And he says, well, we'll cut the baby in half. And the woman who says, don't do that. That's clearly the mother, right? Because she would never allow that. The other one's right. going, yeah, cut the baby in half. We'll both have a kid, right? Yeah. And Solomon knew that, right? So that that shows that logical thinking, that idea. And I want to see those moments like they do it a bit with Spider-Man in the Spider-Sense where he's standing there all of a sudden, kung, 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 you know, like his hairs on his arms. I want to see that with Captain Marvel, who I won't call Shazam because he's Captain frickin' Marvel. Right? <laughs> but, Thank you, but anyway, sir. He should, yeah, so he yeah. should be in those moments. So he's like, I'm going to, and they're like, wait a minute. You know, like, because the, the wisdom of Solomon, like a good idea, doesn't come all, all the time. It comes right. occasionally, right? Absolutely. So they need to do that. And I, and I feel that they missed out on that. They're focusing far too much on him being an impish boy trapped in a man's body, which would have been fine, except that you introduced the Shazam family. So now they're all children. All the thing, and it, to me, it lessens the, the whole thing. I just, as soon as they introduce the idea that they're all kids and they're all now Shazam characters, and I'm just like, what's the point in this? You know, like it's like yeah. when Superman has a bunch of cousins and, and Superboy, you're just like, it's no longer a special thing anymore to be the last son of Krypton. You're not. You're one of many Kryptonians. Right? Yeah, it's totally sure one of many. jumping. Yeah. Yeah, man, yeah. I'm just going like, do we, I really need to see, I didn't mind Freddie Friedman as I think, but when they had all the kids, which was, you know, again, built into the Jeff Johns storyline that he did, which, you know, all the powers were spread out. I just went, this is lessening things. The only way that that could work for me would have been if they all took one of the powers. Right. You know, yeah. so this one guy's super fast. That would make sense. Sure. Yeah. You know, then it would have went, oh, that's cool. And so Mary could be, have the wisdom of All Solomon, of a sudden right? you've got and, five supermen flying around. It's right, like, yeah. You yeah. know, and, uh, you know, it was Jerry Ordway who said that whenever, um, like, Mary or, or uh, Freddie calls down the power, it lessens Captain Marvel's power. And I right. like that, too, right? Like, he didn't have all that strength. So he could be fighting a guy winning, and suddenly, you know, over here, Freddie goes, Shazam, and now he's, like, half his strength, right? Yeah, That's yeah, cool, yeah. Right? yeah, yeah. So those are, there are lots of ways to make that character really interesting. But I'm with you about Zachary Levi. You know, they clearly cast him because he could play a kid, and I get it. 
but I just sort of tired of the whole. He's more of a kid than the body. kid that plays the kid, though. That's kind of the exactly. issue with yeah. it, right? Yeah, hundred percent. Okay, yeah. listen, we got uh, less than. He's, a he's way, like his dialogue is even written very different. Even yeah, the yeah. dialogue is really, really written poorly because not poorly, but contrary because the kid Asher is actually quite mature. And yeah, you know, yeah. and then suddenly he's acting like an asshole when he's yeah, Captain Marvel. Like you're going, yeah. doesn't even seem like the same person. All right, so we've spent a little time oh. digging into your fave, the the, the <laughs> hey, big blue <laughs> the big blue Boy Scout himself. So now yeah. we have to address my fave and how this okay. is going to affect the Batman, because uh, I I thought we we're going to talk about Star Wars. We'll get to this. <laughs> we'll still like. Okay. Of all the Batman we've had, yeah, we, I've still not seen my Batman, which is yeah. pretty much the Neil Adams Batman. Yeah, yeah, no, I'm with you. I uh, I think that Robert Pattinson has an opportunity. Mm-hmm. Um, I know what they were doing there, and they were trying to show the pre Bruce Wayne Batman. And one of the things that I loved about the Robert Pattinson film or the uh, uh, Matt Reeves film was. They were playing on the idea of what Frank Miller said, which was when Batman was nine years old and his parents were murdered in front of him, he became Batman. And Bruce Wayne is the mask. Mm-hmm. So he hasn't developed the mask yet. He's actually only been developing the Batman character. And they played that really nicely where he says, I'm like a nocturnal creature. There's a bit where he's talking to Alfred in his daytime and he puts the sunglasses on because he's just not used to light. Yeah. You know, he's been he's been hanging out at nighttime all the time. He is Batman pretty much 100% of the time. Bruce Wayne is clearly a unaccustomed character. He's not. I've been used to being seen. I love the little bits with it. Hey, there's Bruce Wayne, you know, like, cause nobody sees him. Right. Which also plays better into the idea of the mythos of Batman. If Bruce Wayne is this playboy that we see all the time around, somebody's going to pick up the fact that it's probably Batman. Right. Yeah. But that, that was cool. So what I'm hoping for in, you know, year two, or I mean, year three, cause he's supposed to, year two, uh, year three or year four, he starts to develop the Bruce Wayne persona and starts to kind of figure out, you know, how do I deflect from Batman? By making this guy completely vacuous and completely, you know, non-interesting, like the Neil Adams days, you know, Bruce Wayne um, definitely comes off as this playboy, but but he's so serious and so dramatic as Batman, but not vengeful dramatic. He's kind of a hero, like he's not afraid to take the shirt off and have his bare chest while he's sword fighting with Rachel Ghoul, right? You know, right, like yeah, there there's a side to Batman that is this kind of swashbuckler that um, I kind of love and I would like to see a little bit of. I don't know that he always needs to be quite so tortured. I think we've done that. And, you know, you know, Christian Bale did it brilliantly. I love Ben Affleck as Batman. I thought he was great as the older Batman, you know, like, you know, finding his way again. And I think Robert Pattinson's character has an opportunity now to develop out as what I think could be our Batman, which would be this idea that Batman is um, he's a force for good, you know, and uh, if you only have him beating the shit up out of you know reprobates and, and poor people, it really doesn't shine well on them. <laughs> but if he's taking down guys like Rachel Ghoul or he's taking down you know crime syndicates or the Court of Owls or things like that, now you can see that Batman that is the real hero, the guy that says, you know, I have to look out for all people, not just you know the rich. Yeah. That, <laughs> that, that, that confident you know, Batman, you know, yeah, yeah, that, that confident the guy that knows what he's doing. You know, there's several times in the in that Batman film where you saw Bat Robert Pattinson acting very confident. Like there's a beautiful bit where he's walking behind Commissioner Gordon. By the way, Matt Reeves, genius, cast all short actors except Robert Pattinson. So Robert <laughs> yeah. Pattinson looks like a freaking giant. Yeah. He's got those big boots. He's like six four, walking amongst these guys. All the other cops, everybody is like shorter. I thought that was just genius, the casting. And Jeffrey Wright again, short actor. He Brilliant was when you're standing so next to him. Good. Oh, oh, he was so good. But yeah. the one cop goes and puts his hand on Batman's chest. And I was singing about Christian Bale and thinking Christian Bale would go, get your hands off me. Yeah. Or Ben Affleck would go, you want to lose that hand or something like that, right? Yeah. And all Pattinson does, he looks down and then looks up again. And the guy goes, yeah. lifts his hand up, right? That was Dude, epic, the Batman. tension. <laughs> when he's standing there, and that's my favorite moment in the whole film, when he's standing there yeah. and there's like all those cops around him and he's just, yeah. the look on his face is like, yeah fuck with me i dare you and, oh, yeah. and he kind of says it at one point he goes i'll put you in the hospital or something he's like, like, oh my a, God. like he's he, then, like i came out of that and i think batman wise he may be yeah. my favorite batman as far as portrayal of the bat you know like absolutely as yeah. far as batman's concerned 100 i thought his bruce wayne obviously is very uh young in in the yeah. bruce wayne but you're right that's I the love, idea right yeah 100 you know and he's yeah. finding bruce wayne and, and that's why i say like 
I'm really hoping that Matt Reeves starts to play with the idea that the the Bruce Wayne uh, Playboy persona is kind of coming out now. Another mm-hmm. thing I loved about the this was an homage to uh, Batman uh, Earth One, the idea that Alfred trained him. That he didn't go around the world learning all these martial arts and stuff. That Alfred, you know, is an RAF and a super spy. Alfred was never a butler. He was always their bodyguard. Yeah. Right. And then, you know, he had to become a butler or a, a manservant. That's why there's that woman that's actually taking care of the home. But it, Alfred's his basically surrogate father. See, the problem with the Alfred character, when done like the way Michael Caine did it, and that for me is there's no reason for Bruce to be so angry. He actually lost his parents, yes, but he was adopted by a wonderful man who taught him, you know, all these wonderful things. He had, yes, of course, he's still driven. He's still going to go out and learn those things. But the vengeance wouldn't be as as solidified unless he's psychotic, right? So it, it starts to speak to the the unresolved issues of, of a young boy. With the Andy Circus Alfred was he was ill-equipped to be a bat, uh, dad. And so he didn't. He didn't. He just taught him all the things that, you know, to try to focus the rage. Right. So the rage never went away. And that's a way better portrayal between those two characters. Alfred will always be the guiding force of morality in that. But he hadn't really stepped up to that. He was just going, well, I need this kid to love me. So you want to learn how to fight? Sure, I'll teach you how to fight. You want to build a cave? Yeah, cool. We'll do that. Like, I'll help you do these things. Anything to win this kid's love. Right. Yeah, he yeah. wasn't equipped to be a dad. And Absolutely, I thought that was yeah. just genius. That was so good. So I'm really looking forward to where this Batman can go because to me, Robert Pattinson is the best Batman. It's just yeah. not the best fully formed character yet. But yeah. but Batman wise, you can't beat that character. You can get there. The you know he, he can. Fought. Yeah. And the way you know, the way he would slowly walk into a room with the shoulders, you know? <laughs> this shit. Like I was just like, God damn, man. Like yeah. and the cape back over the shoulders because he's so confident, you know, like none of the yeah. skulking, right? Just yeah. like walking in the doom, doom. I miss doom. the like, cape though, dude. Like that was one thing I, I do admit. Like I missed about like Michael Keaton is really and maybe sometimes Bale the only guys that ever like cloaked up. You know, yeah, came yeah. out of the shadows or just had the fucking word. They were nothing but eyes. Oh, I understand. Like it was less the superhero thing. And it was more the you know the the creature yeah. of the night. You know the the thing. So with what I think they were trying to do with because um, you know he uses the cape a little bit. He, he whips it around and you know kind of does a couple of things. But they were trying to go for that much more practical aspect of it. Sure. I also would love to have seen the bat scallops on the cape, and they didn't have that, and that kind of drove me a little nuts. Right. <laughs> I love those. Yeah. You know, that Batman to me, that he's one of the only guys who has the coolest yeah. cape of the ball, right? I'm and they should have named that woman taking care of the house Harriet. Like, some point, somebody awesome. should have been like, thanks, Harriet. Harriet. I thought the like, same thing. Or right? even Leslie Jenkins. Leslie yeah. Jenkins, I thought, too, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, like, she could be this this in-house physician, you know, who's, yeah, yeah. you know, Thomas Wayne has known all his life, right? You bring in the Leslie Tompkins character. She's been looking after the house. And when Bruce comes in, she's one of the ones they can find. And they're going, you know, he's pretty beat up. And she goes and sews him up, right? What, yeah. Alfred does everything? You know, I think it'd be yeah. cool, right? I think I'm so, just yeah, no, dying I'm to see that that the animated Justice League Batman on screen or even any of the Warner Brother movies because like he's in that place, he's confident, but he's also like he's uh he's almost come to terms with who he is at a certain point. Mm-hmm. Like the like Ben Affleck's Batman was very close to that, but I found him a little yeah. too a little too uh howdy doody about putting together the Justice League. Yeah, like, it was a little like, Pollyanna. Um, one of the things does that, that makes really sense. Yeah. Justice, oh yeah, hundred percent. One yeah. of the things I loved about Justice League and Justice League Unlimited, and you know when I was doing the comic book on that, I uh, absolutely tried to always bring was that Batman uh, was much more heroic in in that than he was in his previous incarnations, and the reason being was he realized he couldn't do it all. But he also realized that if you're going to have all these gods in a watchtower overlooking the earth, you better have a human amongst them. You know, you better have, you know, a guy who's going to represent each one of us, right? That's why the first guy he recruits is Green Arrow. He doesn't recruit a superhero. He recruits another guy, right? Right, And then a guy who has contrary points of view to his own, right? Because Batman is quite conservative and kind of slightly right wing, right? Whereas Green Arrow is this left wing leftist, you know, and kind of thing, right? So the first guy Batman recruits because he's just enough uh, introspective enough to say, I need a me, but I don't need a me. You know, yeah. so I love that. I love the hero Batman, right? Yeah. So that's yeah. what I'm, I'm. I'm with you. I want to see that in, in the Justice League. James Gunn said, um, "I'm really looking forward to playing with the relationship between Batman and Superman because I love it in the comics, right?" Oh, yeah. And yeah, and in the animated series, it's so perfect. You know, like you know, cool at Clark. He goes, "Have a sense of humor, Bruce." Like they're they're kind of friends. You know, oh, they're, they're not, they're not constantly each other. Yeah. Yeah. 
yeah. and they're buddies. And then they're like, I loved uh, Challenge of the Super Sons or, you know, uh, you know, the, the latest one. That was so good. They Batman and Superman were so great. He goes, he goes, kind of reminds us of when we first met and Batman goes, I was never that unkind. Yeah. <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know, I just love that. Do you that know when that, yeah. that Batman uh putting the justice together justly together thing switched and happened because i believe originally it was wonder woman way back in the day i think the original yeah, original justice um, league i'm pretty sure wonder woman put them together yeah i mean i i should recall it was the flash but um oh do you <laughs> yeah like in the 60s anyway in the 60s it was um i'll have to look at into that one. I don't want to. I don't want to go on record as that. But I seem to recall that there was the Flash reached out to Superman first, and they started sort of putting these guys together. It was in the mid '80s when Kevin McGuire and uh, I think it was again J.M. Demadius did that, where they relaunched uh, the World Without a Justice League, and it was Superman sort of putting them together because Superman was saying. I can do all these things, but I can't be everywhere at once. And I still want a life, you know, and he's, you know, I still wanted to be able to do things. So he started to pick each one of the things and, you know, in the Justice League um, Unlimited or Justice League League Animation, it was John Jones, right? He he landed on on Earth and needed these guys to stop this invasion. I think that that's your impetus. I think John Jones should put together the Justice League. I have always loved that idea that this guy from another planet realizes he's completely overwhelmed. And this planet has a lot of people who could help. Right. And I just love the idea that, you know, this alien guy goes and forms this thing. John was in every um, Justice League up until the new 52. Right. You know, that's the first time they swapped him out and john to me is the heart of the justice league right more so than cyborg could ever be like i know uh, zach snyder said you know he was the heart of that movie yes he was but that would have worked way better with john jones <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know would have no, been such a, you know? yeah he that's yeah he's a fascinating character john jones he's oh, just so unique character. he's so, so unique compared to all the rest of the characters and their stories and their backgrounds <laughs> He's very unique, and he's got a very you know original. I absolutely place loved about the animated from. series. When I was working yeah. on um, Adventures, um, you know, we were doing Jean, and he hadn't been designed for animation yet. So I was drawing him in the standard um, way he was being depicted in the comics at that time. Really, so he ears, and he had the big beetle brow and the whole bit. And I liked it. I liked my design. But then the animation uh, animated series came out, and they removed his ears, and he has just that streamlined thing. Yeah. And I thought, of course, he hears everything telepathically. Yeah. Right? He would never yeah, hear yeah. sounds. He communicates telepathically, right? Yeah. And I went, that's a freaking cool idea. It's a right? brilliant design move, right? right? Why would he have ears, right? Yeah. He yeah. doesn't communicate that way, right? Yeah. I just went, that's that's some really forward thinking. I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah, and I like that they mellowed him out a bit compared to his original like comic. Like He was a bit more stern yeah. in, the, in the comics, and then they made him this... Uh, more vision-esque in a way in, in the yeah, cartoon. Yeah, I thought he was Zen. You know, he had a sort of a Zen-like attitude, right? You know, where he had seen the good and the bad of, of humanity and then decided to, you know, uh, weigh on the side of good and try to do the right thing. You know, Steve Orlando did a uh, Jean Jones uh, miniseries, Marshall Manhunter miniseries, about a year and a half ago, maybe two years ago, where he played him as a sort of corrupt cop on Mars. And then he, you know, realizes the, the folly of his ways. And I enjoyed it and I thought Steve did a great job and I commended him on it. But uh, the problem I had was that Jean Jones is a telepath and i don't believe that anybody was really truly telepathic would be avarice i don't think that they would want to take things because you can you can feel everybody's emotions you can hear everybody's thoughts are you really gonna be okay with ripping off that person or taking from that person i just that was hard for me to buy i think if you were truly telepathic if that's the way you communicated you would see all the good all the bad in people and you wouldn't want to be those things you would want to say okay i'm going to try and raise myself above that unless you're again a sociopath and john jones is not a sociopath right right okay well i'm going to take all this because we have a few minutes left and i'm going to relate it all back to the thing that you thought that i might too and that's star wars Uh right on i know you're a fan um who were we talking about earlier? Was it Superman behaving in a certain way that wasn't your Superman? Yeah. And like Luke know, Skywalker behaving in a way like that wasn't your Luke Skywalker. Luke <laughs> fucking Skywalker, man. Yeah. And these things happen and they're such a fucking trip. I still I still can't comprehend how you take basically you they took Superman and yeah. made him give up. And you know, it's 
It's when you separate the um, property from the creative force that created it. Um, George Lucas certainly made some mistakes. Jar Jar Binks, you know, I'm looking at you, but um, I don't even you know, consider not- that a mistake because he was that was for a particular element. Do you know what I, I mean? Of the I, audience, I only way. use that as a, as a because yeah, most people I, sort of you know you know, look right. down at that character. But when Mark Hamill, the guy who's been playing this character, and you know Ryan uh, Johnson, the the guy who directed that that film, which took Luke in such a bizarre um point of view you know they had fights they went back and forth and then you know he said you know mark hamill is not luke skywalker luke skywalker exists beyond mark hamill and so you know i'm creating this idea that you know this trauma uh, forced luke skywalker to do these things a trauma worse than his aunt and uncle being burned and live in front of him because of him a trauma worse than uh you know him losing his hand to his father and learning that his father this- is Darth Vader. that like none of that it was enough like ben solo <laughs> Turning into it's just not enough. I'm sorry. He's been yeah. through so much more than yeah. that. That this absurdity that he suddenly is, you know, a recluse and and the the throwing the um the lightsaber away. Yeah, ha ha ha, funny, right? But it went nowhere, you know. And yeah. you're going. This kid you know, stood have, up to I, the emperor and said no. This yeah, guy defied the emperor. Everything, you know, like everything, like you know, he he and he kept, you know, kept training and kept trying to be better and tra- 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 trying to, you know, better himself as a Jedi, right? So yeah. suddenly he got freaked out because this one guy did this. You know, I mean, you know, the dark side exists. You know that it, you know, like you've watched your own father fight back from the dark side and come back. You've watched others you fall to it. You know, you this absurdity that that, that was the one thing that triggered him. Uh, you don't know Luke Skywalker as far as I. Especially concerned. those of and us I think who he's spend... listen to Mark Hamill. Mark Hamill was saying, yeah. like, this is how Mark Luke would work. And yeah. you know, the arrogance of Ryan Johnson, and I don't know him, you know, or right. you know, I'm not trying to speak ill of the guy, but the arrogance of thinking, you know, you know, trust me, I know what I'm doing. When you're doing one one film amongst an entire legacy of these films, and to ignore that legacy and say, I'm gonna do this because I want it to be something you're not expecting. That is the first folly of any film making. When you're making any film, and I've been doing this a long, long time, you never start from the idea of what can I do different? You start, how can I make things better? How can I fix things? How can I, you know, how can I elevate the material, right? You don't go, aha, I want to make this better. You know, I want to make this weird because now nobody will expect Luke to do that. No, there's a reason you wouldn't expect Luke to do that. I would have bought it more if Han Solo had done that. Right. That, that would have been more believable because, you know, he was cocky and arrogant and suddenly his son is corrupted by the dark side of force and he's feeling all this pain and anguish, you know? Or how about when Han Solo got killed? Like, what a punk way to go out. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. Like, you yeah. know, going like, that's not Han Solo. You really think he actually thought, like, that, that uh, you know, Kylo wasn't going to stab him? That, that And then the look of surprise on his face, I'm going, really? He should have, yeah. like, when he got stabbed, he should have gone like this. I still love you, son, or something, you know, like, yeah. you know, just, yeah, yeah, he knew yeah, it was yeah. going to come. He knew it was going to come. He's like, I'm, Dude, I'm showing you that I fucking love you no matter they what. Almost, right? He almost pulled that moment off perfectly when, when, when Kylo Ren is flying in and Leia's on the ship and he can't bring himself to shoot her and destroy the ship. Yeah. Right. So he flies yeah. out of the way. Then Leia sits down, gets a smite, slight smile on her face. And then the other yeah. ships blow it up. Done. Yeah. Cut it off right the fuck there. Leia's had the perfect fucking death. Yet then they yeah. had to marry Poppins her back into the shit. That was so brutal. Like that, you know, yeah. again, you know, the idea that she'd never trained. And then they tried to retcon by saying that Luke actually trained her with no no evidence of that whatsoever. <laughs> yeah. know, like, well, I think it's harder too wanna... for those of us who spent 20 years reading the fucking books. Because but again, you have to assume that everybody did and nobody did. Like, I mean, the yeah, hardcore people did, you know? And I but read if the you comments. Did, though, I, I my point is, if you yeah. did, the things that they did do with Luke and with Chewie, like fucking yeah. man, Chewie, like Chewie went out screaming at a fucking moon while it fell on his fucking head. Like yeah. he rescued a whole bunch of fucking Padawans, got them yeah. off planet, sits, and then just howled as a moon came down on him. And yeah, then, see, yeah, that's fucking yeah, badass. Like, that's on. what I want to see. You know, right? that's what I mean. Like, I just, you know, my problem with is with the Star Wars things, you know, I know we don't have a lot of time, so I won't go into too much of it. But, you know, I don't have any problem with Kathleen Kennedy at all. But I do have a problem with the idea of carving up the this legacy to different filmmakers and not having them communicate. That's yeah. insane. Yeah, you were gonna well, always have some weird film over here and some weird. They introduce Smoke, which is this enigmatic, interesting character, and then they kill him for no reason because yeah. they got a guy who want to write with him, right? Yeah. 
Well, we got yeah, Filoni. Filoni Filoni's going to make all things right. I have all faith in Filoni. All hail Filoni. Filoni right, knows what he's doing, doing, man. All you got to do is sit there and listen to him in an interview for like two minutes, and you're like, oh, he gets yep. it more than any of us could possibly get how this shit works, right? So, yeah, it's, it's absolutely so super cool. So, you know what I love about creators and Canadian creators and doing this podcast <laughs> and having done it for so long that I could have an Emmy award winning motherfucking oh, yeah. creator on my show with this 30 year history of the most badass fucking shit. And we didn't talk about any of it. <laughs> but you know what we talked about we talked about what we love and yes. you know what just have me on another time we can talk about all that dude other stuff. you're coming back all the damn time because absolutely this is, brother these nerd outs are the absolute best and i so appreciate your point of view on these things because you've been doing this for 30 years and Thanks, you, you've learned how to tell a story and you know like remember that comic book i was talking about well i was telling you about the book i was writing yep um yeah i, I, love I finished that. the first draft I can't wait to see it. You got to send it over to me, man. And I I'm, promise I won't steal anything. I promise. No, no. It's just, it's just like, uh, you know, I shared it with a few writer friends and yeah. the tips and suggestions were just amazing because they, they weren't like critiquing the story. It was, it was just like how to tell a story. Like there was yeah. a part where I had one person giving too much exposition and it was pointed out to me that you kind of break this up with between two people or have a guy in a crowd or yep. whatever. And it's just simple things I don't think of because just like I'm not trained on how to write or tell a story sure. properly. So to have guys. Well, like I know that when we were talking about it, we we started started talking about how um, it could have an effect on other characters. And, you know, that's that's sort of the, the route that we went on. And that's just, you know, from from doing it, you know, for a while you go, oh, cool. Let's not forget about it, what the ramifications of that would have on other characters. Right. right. And um, and I love the way you just immediately gravitated towards that. I went, oh, that's cool. You know, we could do that. Oh, so. absolutely. Yeah. No, just wonderful yeah. things. People have been super supportive. So I'm very excited about Can't it. Can't wait I'll to say, read it, Brody. Well, next it. week, I'm take, I have all next week off for holidays. So I'm actually going to just, my whole plan is to write. I'm going to spend every day just fucking working on the second draft. So once I got that fucking nailed out, I'll send it over, see what you think. And, uh, you know, I'm so super excited. It's just been so much fun to do. Like, I forgot what it was like to be in grade seven, just spewing out nonsense on the page, so creative writing, right? So and, good. So good. Yeah. It's the best thing, man. It's so much fun. Um, One more thing I wanted to ask, and I'm not, sure. I'm not harking on this Emmy thing, but it was, it was Paw Patrol. <laughs> no, it was uh, Arthur. Oh, that's right. It was Arthur. Now, have you worked on Paw Patrol? No. No, okay. Um, I, I think I, I did some. I did some licensing stuff for Paw Patrol. I think uh, uh, for uh, Golden Books. I think I did a couple of um, kids' oh, licensing. Right. Okay. Yeah. The only reason I was asking is uh, I'm not familiar with. Uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Sam Agro, Samuel Agro. Yeah, yeah. No, yeah, yeah, I know he does. Yep. Uh, he does like design work for Paw Patrol. Oh, right on. So, yes. had you both sure. worked on it, I was wondering if there had, if you guys knew each other or had. But yeah, since no, you no, had, I know, the point, I, I know yeah. of them, but uh, no, we haven't worked together. And I, you know, I think I'm really reaching back on Paw Patrol. I mean, I'm not even 100% sure. I know I did some stuff on Blues Cruise and uh, Transformers, uh, the um, Rescue Bots. So there was a lot. Of, I did a lot of those sort of young kids stuff, and I think Paw Patrol was in in that. But I, I, I I'm so inundated with that kind of thing as far as you know. It's they, insane those are... that every time I talk to you, something new comes up. Like, <laughs> yeah, the... no, I've just I've done a lot of them, and you know, I mean, it's so I hate to say this because it's it's not indicative of how I feel about when I'm doing it, but they're they're just work jobs. You know, you go like, oh, cool. Oh, sure. on, you know, yeah, yeah. But at the time I'm pouring everything into it, you know, I, I care about my work, you know, but um, I don't, I don't recall it the same way I would with fondness, like, you know, Adventures of the DC Universe or Batman Beyond or any of those things. But, um, you know, I, uh, I still, I feel great about the work I've done, but uh, it's just hard for me to remember all the, uh, the licensing stuff. I've done so much of it. So sure. It's also one of those things where unfortunately storyboarding is just another part of the process that gets very little recognition. And, well, you know, you know, I mean, um, I always demand uh, a credit in the the films. It's part of my contract. So whenever I do storyboards, there's a lot of guys who don't think to do that, and so they don't get a credit. But I always oh, yeah. do. And so, yeah, I always demand it, and it's awesome. part of my my deal with them. Whenever I send the contract, I say I got to make sure that it's the storyboards by John Delaney or and whoever else is storyboarding. I fight for the rights of the other storyboard artists too. I just always, you know, even though they don't ask, I do for them, and I just go make sure that our names are on there for storyboards. So it's a big man. important thing to me. Good credit man. Credit 
Oh, Jesus Christ, John, we're going to have hours and hours of fun talking about so much <laughs> stuff. Thank you for hanging out with us tonight, Thank my you, friend. Brother. Always a pleasure, Jay. It's been an incredible experience getting to know you this year, and I can't wait for many more years of fun and adventure, man. Me too, brother. Can't wait to bend the elbow again. Let's get some drinks in us. Oh, heck yeah. Kids, uh, so much to check out from Mr. Delaney here, but uh, you know, get your hands on the adventures in the DC universe because they were just some beautiful beautiful books uh, if you're not familiar with Thank john's style it's 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 a uh, you know it's very retro uh it's very uh it's very warm and it's very comforting at least to oh, a guy like you, me so uh but we'll get into that more we'll have john back tons we'll get into if we're ever able to we may geek out we may get into his process who knows and that's the thing I love about I love this that. show is we go where we go <coughs> Uh, the kids, uh, where can they find you? They can find you at John Delaney on Instagram. Yeah. John Delaney 40 on Instagram. Right. Right. And right. then, uh, that's really the only, only place I go. Um, I don't really spend a lot of time on social media, but that one, it's great because it's a format for, you know, a forum for art. So I spend a lot of time to that. I don't think anybody really cares about what I had for breakfast. So I'd right. rather just go right. to Mark, you know? Yeah. So, well, uh, yeah, Instagram, John Delaney 40 on Instagram. Um, ultimately, you know, if you go onto IMDB, there's a lot of my credits as far as animation is concerned. So you can see the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle stuff and chaotic and Voltron Forest and all that stuff so you can you can always find we out what kids, i did we just went this entire this gentleman that you just listened to me talk to for the past hour worked on the original season of the teenage yeah. mutant ninja turtles and we didn't yeah. even address that that we'll is that next how, time that is how <laughs> much goddamn content that we're gonna get out of fucking john fucking delaney right here kids <laughs> thank you buddy. uh john thank you so much even better take care Cheers. kids that is all we are gonna have this week on an elegant weapon Take it easy.